You're listening to The Souvenir Shop, a podcast about random objects from the past. Number 34. Tomorrow I'll wake up and scald myself with tea. A DVD bought about 15 years ago from a film website based in the Czech Republic. I paid £10 online, happily giving my credit card details without being able to read any of the Czech terms or conditions. Such was my desperation to own this DVD that I was fully prepared to have my bank account ransacked by a criminal gang in Tibitsa in order to possess it. And when the disc arrived, navigating the Czech menu to bring up the English subtitles involved a lot of trial and error. How does a film achieve cult status? It's hard to know because cult has become a lazy term almost devoid of meaning. Nowadays, it is often no more than marketing shorthand for This is an important and often overlooked example of the art of cinema. That this is the case only goes to prove that the film you are about to watch can only be appreciated by the finest and most sophisticated minds. Minds rather like yours. We've seen the term cult applied to the work of John Waters or Roger Corman or to the cheap sexploitation flicks of Russ Mayer. I know they all have their fans, but the reality of sitting through a film by, for example, Russ Mayer, is to endure a badly made, unfunny, appallingly acted piece of nonsense, with few redeeming features. Ed Wood is another director who has achieved cult status purely by directing films which are so bad, they're bad. This makes it all the more gratifying when a real cult film comes along. At 9.35 on the 16th of January 1982, BBC Two screened a Czech comedy in its Graveyard Foreign Language Film International slot. Realising that no programme screened on Saturday night could ever compete with Match of the Day followed by Parkinson, it probably didn't matter to the BBC schedulers what the film was, because hardly anyone would be watching. But this film was different. Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea is a 1977 science fiction comedy from the then Socialist Republic of Czechoslovakia. It has never been on public release in the UK, making do with occasional screenings at science fiction festivals that either go for the obscure or because they can't afford a good print of Spaceballs. But look up the film on IMDb and you will mostly see nothing but 9 or 10 star reviews. And then you will realise that something else is going on, something quite wonderful from the way many of these reviews open. What you will see is a film achieving cult status. One review begins like this. This is a film I saw just once on BBC Two on a Saturday night. In order not to watch Dallas, I thought I'd watch the first half hour of the film and then turn over for Match of the Day. Match of the Day never got a look in. And another starts, I finally found this film on the web, so it wasn't just my imagination. I rank this amongst the very best films I've ever seen. I saw it 25 to 30 years ago on British TV as part of what must have been a foreign film series on BBC Two. On and on they go, with reviewers desperate to see the film again.
that it should be remembered from a single showing on BBC Two decades earlier and never repeated is one thing. For it also to leave such an indelible mark on the lives of those, like me, lucky enough to be there for it, fulfils the definition of a genuine cult film, seen by a tiny audience whose members end up obsessing over it alone for years until they find each other via the internet. Watching the film now, despite looking a little dated, it holds up pretty well. The plot is as convoluted as we can expect from a time travel farce. It's set in the 1990s. The world is at peace and people take holidays by travelling back in time to great events in history. A group of Nazis steal a now-defunct neutron bomb from a museum and travel to 1941 where they try to present it to Hitler. The plot also involves identical twins, swapped suitcases, anti-aging pills and an avant-garde dance troupe. But don't take my word for it. Since risking my family's financial security on buying the DVD, the film has surfaced on YouTube and, as with IMDb, the first comment we see below the film says... I honestly can't believe I found this film after seeing it one night in the early 80s, occasionally thinking about it ever since, and then dedicating a whole night to tracking it down. I can't wait to watch this again. In other words, this is a film that is treasured beyond those with a special interest in Eastern European cinema. Its semi-mythical status comes from obsessives like me, who saw it once and were desperate to see it again. And in the barren years after 1982 until the DVD release, this combination of quality and scarcity created a genuine cult. But just as cult status can be bestowed, it can quickly be revoked. In 1972, my parents announced that on the following Saturday night, we would all be going to the classic Chelsea on King's Road, to see a five-year-old film none of their three sons had ever heard of. They were quite insistent about this, and that night was memorable, partly because it was the last time my entire family went to the cinema together, and partly because the film we saw was Mel Brooks' comedy, The Producers. Despite winning a 1967 Oscar for Best Screenplay, The Producers never received a UK release and it's easy to see why. Coming barely two decades after the Second World War, the people who run the film industry veered between loving the producers and a well-founded fear that a comedy centering on a musical called Springtime for Hitler was box office poison. In the US, its release was limited and its popularity grew as audiences discovered it for themselves. The producers became a cult film, a sleeper hit, but in the UK it was virtually unknown. The only country where it was an immediate hit was Sweden. Dubbed into the local language, it was released under the name Springtime for Hitler. Such was its success that subsequent Mel Brooks releases bore the titles Springtime for the Sheriff, Springtime for Frankenstein, Springtime for silent movies and so on. Watching the producers in Chelsea that night, I witnessed an entire cinema audience doubled up and helpless with laughter. 
The following Monday, I tried explaining it to my school friends, telling them they needed to produce a flop Broadway show, so they put on a musical about Hitler to be met by uncomprehending indifference. Three years later, Mel Brooks released Blazing Saddles, and those same friends were now discussing farting cowboys, men punching horses, and little else. In the slipstream of Blazing Saddles, the producers was rediscovered via TV showings. The mega-hit musical followed some years later, and the original film, stripped of its cult status, is now an established part of our cultural life. As for me, I felt slightly cheated. Until Blazing Saddles, the genius of Mel Brooks was something known to very few people I knew outside of my family. I know there are people out there who were fans of Nick Drake before he died, or the Velvet Underground before their breakup. People who loved their individual voice, and then watched with sorrow as they went from tortured artists to corporate brand. Like me, they probably pined for the days when they could feel as if they alone had been let in on a marvellous secret. I doubt whether Yindrich Pollack, the director of Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea, will ever reach the dizzy heights of fame achieved by Mel Brooks. He died in 2003. But his brilliant film lives on, quietly prized by those lucky enough to have been randomly watching BBC Two one Saturday night over 40 years ago. That was Tomorrow I'll Wake Up and Scald Myself with Tea. Written and read by Matthew Diamond. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not click like and subscribe on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. And I'll see you next time.